This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Kevin Corbett, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you very much for having me. Just to contextualize our conversation, what is what is your biography? Uh, well, um, my biography, you mean, what have I done previously? Mm. And yeah, well, uh, I started off um, studying art and um, but before that I mean my parents were both nurses I think my family background is quite important and my parents were immigrants they were Irish immigrants into the UK into England after the Second World War and uh, my father and mother were both psychiatric and general nurses so uh, they worked in the National Health Service and my father became quite senior and my mother in nursing administration and bureaucracy and hospital management and all the major things budgets and things like that and my mother was um my mother was an uh, an accident and emergency sister so she worked in casualty departments and intensive care units and so that was my background, my parents' professional background. And we grew up in mental asylums. Now, that may seem really strange that we grew up living in psychiatric asylums. Because to, people to, today... To help others. Crazy. To help... Well, no, we lived in hospital premises. You know, we lived oh. on the job. My parents had... My father had to live in the, um, in the hospital environment he had to live in the hospital grounds within the property of the hospital within the borders of the hospital because look in the in the 1950s and the 1960s we had these huge psychiatric institutions in the uk called mental asylums and they had like you know some of them had six seven eight hundred beds so they had like small towns and small villages or large villages or large towns and because my father was senior and was the sort of chief nurse, we had to live on the job. He had to be on the job. That was part of the contract. So we couldn't live miles away from the hospital. If there's an emergency or there's something to be sorted out, he had to go in, you know, 24-7. Uh, and we lived in hospital houses with gardens. And the plus side of that was um, we got to know all the patients. And, you know, when I was very young, we had big gardens in these houses and we, we had patients who came to do the gardens for us. And you learned all about mental illness and mental health, I suppose. Uh, you certainly learned about mental illness as a young kid. And we were always in the hospital. You know, my parents, my father would bring me around the wards at Christmas. We'd see patients and staff. And it was very... Um, I suppose it was quite um, Victorian in that sense. It was a bit like something out of Charles Dickens uh, in that, you know, there was this sort of benevolence and this charity. Uh, but those asylums were shut in the 1980s by um, the Thatcher government, by Margaret Thatcher, for issues of cost and because the so-called psychiatric drugs were so good, they didn't need these big asylums. But th there was a plus side to these institutions. They weren't all like Irving Goffman, the um, American sociologist described. They weren't all lockups. They weren't all negative institutions. There were some benevolent and positive things about them uh, in, in that they were trying to encourage um, patients to move out of the hospitals and to live more in the community. Uh, they didn't um, just throw people out and just give them drugs like they do today. And, uh, you know, it's quite difficult to, to explain this. So that was my background, living in um, hospital, a psychiatric hospital. Can you imagine what that's like at school when people ask you, what, yeah. where do you live and what, does your, what do your parents do? 
and having a father who's a nurse, uh, you know, that's seen as a female occupation. It was certainly in the 1960s. So there's all these sort of outsider elements to my background, I suppose. But um, growing up with that professional backbone in the family and, and professional values guiding the family, I suppose, and also being Roman Catholic and being Irish sets you slightly apart from <laughs> from the rest of, from the rest of uh, you know not society but it does tend to set you apart certainly in the uk in england in the 1960s it's a protestant country you know, there's an anti-catholic um subculture across the uk a remnant from henry the eighth i suppose still to, fact, this day. You still know, to this day yeah to, still to this day and also with irish parents uh, you know, being an Irish heritage, remember the Irish were always in the British Isles, Ireland was always subservient, people were seen as unsophisticated and ignorant, and there was always this discrimination, uh, sort of not exactly like an apartheid, but certainly a, a, a discrimination against the Irish, and um, the Irish were always seen as, um, you know, peasants basically that's the terrible thing to say but that's how when you were growing up in the 60s that's how ireland was perceived by the british really um, and yet the, the irish the irish had you know um, sorry sorry jeremy no i was just going to say the british seem to have that history everywhere i mean that's what happened down here when they came here for example when i say british i mean english yeah well, it's so, divide and rule, isn't it? And it's how the British Empire became mm. uh, so so powerful. And um, and as much as there's huge difference across England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, as much as there's difference, there's huge amounts of uni of unity there amongst the different peoples as well, because <sighs> there is a huge um, intermingling and, and integration between the Irish and the English and as much as the separation and division and strife and we and um, you know Northern Ireland is a good example of that um, primarily created by the British I would say the, there is a huge integration there and potential for the future and and I, I think that, that that's quite interesting that you look at the way the British Empire created its power base and then it imploded in the mid 20th century and certainly after the Second World War started to implode very visibly and contract and you had workforce brought in from different parts of the empire the Caribbean uh, the Republic of Ireland which then had broken off and become a separate country but all these these cultural uh, resources were brought into the UK to populate the public services and 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 uh, you know Car West uh, Caribbean nurses worked in the NHS, Indian doctors staffed the NHS, and Irish nurses worked in the NHS and and cre you know helped create it. And for whatever reason, that's how it worked economically. It was um, it was a cultural domination, I suppose, that mm. that um, served served its purpose. And um, and there's no way that that can be ignored. I mean, there were whole hospitals in the UK that were run by Irish staff. I trained at one in East London called Whips Cross Hospital, and the the hospital was over 600 beds. When I started there in 1983, and every ward had Irish staff, Irish ward sisters. There were generations of nurses from Ireland that sure. staffed that whole hospital. Sure. You know, there was one who ran a ward. Uh, her her uh, her sister or her niece or cousin ran another ward in the hospital, or worked in the A and E department. It, there was a huge um, Irish. Um, staffing of that hospital and the school of nursing would employ Irish students because the tutors said that the Irish students the Irish girls as they call them had the best caring values the Roman Catholic caring values 
of community. And uh, this was really interesting how, and of course, there were hospitals that were run by Caribbean nurses and, and Jamaican and Trinidadian nurses for years in the UK and in mental health and in the um, general medical services. And this is a huge history that's now being, in the last sort of 30 years, has been researched, has been written up. There are books on all of this and people can look it up. But that's the background, the asylums in the UK. I, I lived in many of them. So my mm. father moved around and became promoted to director. And um, we, we, we lived in them. You know, can you, uh, the patients with psychiatric disorders were, were not in any way we were just not frightened at all about mm. um, the, uh, you know, my mother would explain to me about um, our gardeners who, one of them had schizophrenia. And my mother would talk to me about what that was. And these were people to us. They were first name, Christian name terms. Mm. And we'd get to know them. They would come in and the house and they would, sit with us that they'd even eat with us and and uh, we'd in, engage and that may seem very um dickensian um but it wasn't uh, a them and us situation and um, so by the time i was 12 i knew what schizophrenia was manic depression which is called bipolar now i knew what depression was i knew that the different types of depression endogenous and exogenous and i knew <laughs> and and i knew what uh, the therapies were, and some of them were quite brutal. But you know, this wasn't um, something abnormal to me. It was just something that you well, grew up with. And, yeah, mm. That's what I wanted to ask you, Kevin. Don't laugh at me. Um, I mean, I'm asking this genuinely, but mm. is mental illness actually a thing? Well, that's a very good, that's a very good question. And I, I think... It's certainly a thing in that people talk about it. It's named, and it has, it has a. Um, there are categories, and there's the Diagnostic and Statistical Man DSM five or whatever we're on now. The, the diagnostic manuals, there's criteria for diagnosis. However, it is it is also social construction, and it's also a way of society dealing with people that don't fit in and are, um, you know, um, on the fringe, <laughs> a bit like the no virus people today, I suppose. But um, this is what I learned in a very tangible way as I was growing up. Um, I remember my father telling me about the patients. We'd go into the hospital and I'd be about 10 or 11. We go on on Christmas day and we go around all the wards because he ran the hospital and he had to be seen to be there on Christmas day and meet the staff and all, you know, all the PR thing. And, and he would tell me about the patients and, and he'd tell me about some of the female patients that ended up in the hospital in the 1950s that were still there when we were living there in the 1960s. And there were women that were out, had children out of wedlock and had psychiatric problems or, psychological problems, had symptoms and would end up in the courts within the custodial system and ended up being put into an asylum and there they live the rest of their lives. Or people that had nervous breakdowns, as they were called, ended up in these places. Or people were interned for all sorts of social reasons, you know. Uh, they were committed, as, as, they was, as the term was. And I, in I, those days, it was harder to get out of those places, you Yes. Know? Well, it's very qualitative and subjective, mm. and that's where the social construction of it comes in. And there's a huge literature on this, going back to Irving Goffman's The Asylums, and all the, uh, you know, post-war uh, reappraisal of psychiatry through um, the dissident psychiatrists, seeing it as a social construction, and seeing it as a way of society mopping up people that don't fit in and and giving them labels and um and i'm not in any way denying uh, or um downplaying people's problems exhibiting uh, you know 
surfacing as symptoms. But there is this control element to, to psychiatry that you see far more, it's far clearer in psychiatry than in many other forms of medicine, I think. It's there in all forms of orthodox medicine. But I think in psychiatry, it's very clearly, um, it's very clearly evident. And um, maybe more disguised today because these institutions don't exist in the same way that they did 30, 40 years ago. And now the mental asylum, the, the um, incarceration of people happens in a different way. It happens in their own homes through psychiatric control, through drugs, through treatments, through sort of mental incarceration, really not so much a physical one as it used to be. And um, so is it a real, is it real, is it unreal, is it social construction? I think it's all of these things. Um, and it's also open to political control. And you could see that in the history of psychiatry. Um, and I, I worked in, 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 in psychiatry on and off as a, a cognitive behavioral therapist in 20 years ago. I was an honorary um, CBT uh, person in a psychosexual medical clinic. So we dealt with all sorts of sexual dysfunctions and sexual performance issues. And I hate those, that sort of language now. It's very reductive and it's very, uh, it's very biomedical. But but that's that's what I did one day a week as a, as a as a lecturer. I had a clinical role, and um, and of course you, I found myself deconstructing it and demedicalizing the whole thing, and seeing seeing it quite differently. When you talk about me, uh, mental asylum, I think the first image that's conjured up is is Gotham City. You know, with these crazy people mm. in straight jackets and they you know the crazy well, eyes and the, you know it's yeah it, but it's incarceration it's incarceration central basically mm. you you incarcerate people who are problematic who don't fit in who are hearing voices may be perceived as a threat to themselves or other mm. people a danger to themselves of others and so you've got the basis there for a dragnet that sweeps people in and this has been written about by, you know, the philosophers like Michel Foucault, uh, you know, and, and it's been done to death by the social scientists and sociologists. But it's very true. It's quasi-prison. You know, it's quasi-custodial, or it was in the 50s and 60s, or even totally custodial. There were, I mean, when I went to work as a student nurse uh, in 1983, I went to a mental hospital for two, three months of my training. And there were locked wards. There were locked wards that were locked, that were like forensic incarceration, where, 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 where people were actually judged by the courts to be physically threatening and had to be locked away. And um, this, this was, you know, is this therapy or is this prison? But mm -hmm. it's a mix. It's a hybrid of both. And so there's an element to the whole psychiatric um profession that is about policing behavior and <laughs> curtailing behavior and certainly about setting norms uh, arbitrarily i would say and you, you you've had diagnoses invented i mean in in stalin's russia you had schizophrenia diagnoses that were invented by the authorities and they were nominated agents of the state who could diagnose people there were doctors there were and, and only specific ones and there were concepts like forms of schizophrenia that the state would say existed that was mm. silent and that could only be perceived by certain uh, functionaries of the bureaucracy so they had the ability to diagnose you they had the power to categorize you as mentally ill and of course that was the dragnet to sweep up all the political distance and give the mental diagnoses, you know. Maybe that's what they're gonna do with us today, you know, is sweep us up and off the street and say we're dangerous because of what we're saying. 
Um, I don't think we're at that stage yet, but it possibly is is a possibility. You never know. But that's how yeah. psychiatry was used. And not just Stalin's Russia, Jeremy. In 2005, 2004, the British government under Tony Blair developed a whole definition of, of personality disorder that they called dangerous and severe personality disorder. And they created this within the policy unit of the Department of Health, not within the, you know, the, the um, profession of psychiatry. It was created by the politicians and it was given to the mental health professionals to operate. And of course, within 10 years, it failed because they couldn't operationalize it, but they created a whole tier of health services around DSPD, as it was called. And um, I uh, researched this in the mid-2000s in a very critical way. And I think, um, you know, I, uh, if I'm to be honest, I think my background and my upbringing um, made me very um, naturally suspicious of these sorts of categorizations because they're political they're political in their essence and exactly the same things happened with covid and sars and hiv and all these so-called uh, viral uh, phenomena uh, that are really they're, they're sort of illusory in a, in a in a social context they're illusions that are created politically and their science base is tenuous or totally false and they exist and are created and gather momentum through medical practice which is dangerous iatrogenesis but they're also created socially between people and with policymakers and governments and that's a sociogenesis it's a, a genesis of something socially that's created and you can see that you see that all the time with covid now you've got these tests and people are operating these lateral flow tests or pcr tests on themselves and they're legitimating the false concept of there being a disease or there being a virus every minute of the day when they're using these things because it's reaffirming the concept it's embedding it further within the social sphere. So that's the sociogenesis of uh, the whole thing. It's created socially. And, you know, because we know these things don't have any science basis to it, but neither did a lot of psychiatry. And the interesting thing about psychiatry is, as the pharmaceutical industry and the lobby became more and more powerful after the war, there were psychiatrists that stood out from pill prescriptions and wanted more of an organic approach to uh, mental illness, it was, as it was called. And one of those was a, a psychiatrist called William Sargent, who really was probably uh, just as bad because he opted for some dreadful sorts of physical treatments like deep insulin comas and electroconvulsive therapies. Mm. Um, but he wasn't favoring the pharmaceutical approach to what was called mental illness and that well, was interesting peter brigan also uh, he, he opposed peter all brigan, of that yeah. stuff yeah mm. but i mean i think there's uh, a much more modern uh anti-psychiatry movement today that's much more liberal and far more open to the spectrum of human behavior and experience like the hearing voices networks and the whole approach to human experience which was pathologized uh in the orthodox psychiatry it was totally pathologized machines uh, people that need help i think you, that's where you started there with what you're mm -hmm. saying how how is that delivered and as you say people who take a gun and they go into shopping mall or whatever or they go to a school and they, they kill 20 30 people we become that's become not normal but it's been popularized perhaps but it's that's not normal behavior that's not i don't like the word normal that's not a, a behavior that society can actually or should actually tolerate and and therefore what does society do about that and i think that's the issue where it starts you see because uh, society empowers the police and and psychiatrists to 
police behavior, to police society, to ensure that the safety, physical safety, or psychological safety for people. So how far do we go with that? And, um, and therefore, what does that imply? What are the ramifications of making that decision that we're going to have that in society, going to have that sort of policing, and we're going to have a, a level of behavior that doesn't tolerate ad hoc murder, which is, you know, um, and what do we do then? How does society organize itself? What infrastructure is put in place? What, what, what is, how it's thought about and how it's operated then takes hold. And um, you've seen this change over the, the centuries. You know, you had, um, you know, you had the concept of the people who didn't fit in in the Middle Ages, the, the village idiots who, that's the sort of very pejorative term, but people who didn't fit in for all sorts of um, reasons, and they were maybe tolerated, they lived on the edge, mm. uh, and then suddenly those are the people that by, you know, the, 18th, the, the 17th and 18th century were, were being incarcerated into institutions and being pathologized, and then you've got this development of, a, you know, orthodox medical power, based on specialist expertise to deal with the dangerous person. And, and there we have today where we have, you know, um, the lockup in an electronic con context. You don't need to be incarcerated in an institution. You can be living in your own home, but you can be in a prison because you're tagged, you're monitored, you're medicated, and you're made to be docile and compliant through the system. And um, you don't need expensive um, institutions if you can do it that way. So, but, but what does it mean though? You see, because we empower these experts to, to run things, you see, and that's where it, we, 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 we give power to the police yeah. and to the professions and to the experts to do all this. And so it starts yeah. with us really. And um, that's right. why I, I say to people, you know, there's no good just banging on about how bad the police are and they're all brutal Nazis and they're going to do something about uh, it. Yeah. I mean, what, how do you want the police to operate? I mean, for example, in the UK at the moment, certainly in the big cities, the police custody units are full of people with mental, you know, with mental issues, with psychiatric mm. issues, with mental health issues. You want to put a spin on it. And, they're not getting any, you know, medical help very much in those places. They're just being contained. And the yeah. police have been left with this because society doesn't want institutions anymore. And, you know, when somebody starts um, becoming um, violent and physically violent and forceful in public and smashes 20,000 pounds worth of plate glass windows in a supermarket and threatens people with the glass, then society has to step in and do something about it. Well, um, because what do you think leads damage, to that? Because of well, all sorts of, all sorts let of me, things. Let me, give, let me give an example. Let me give an example. A, a husband uh, drinks too much and starts roughing up his wife a bit, right? Now that, that's fairly common but it's mm. still wrong. Now, mm. nobody these days would call that mental illness. They'll just call him an arsehole. But there's something going on that led him to do that. The, gene the genesis of it has also, can have all sorts of factors involved. I, 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 I understand that. And what, what triggers that at that particular point in time, I think, is sometimes unknown. And then after the event, there's all sorts of, it's like an onion, there's all sorts of layers to explaining, you know, there's, uh, is there a psychiatric diagnosis, a psychiatric reason for it? Is there a way of exonerating the individual so it's not their responsibility? They, they acted uh, in a situation where they became mad and didn't know what they were doing. That's mm. putting it very bluntly. There's a legal term for that, uh, where people are not responsible for their own behavior. And therefore, there's a lighter 
approach as maybe a lighter sentence for the damage for the murder or whatever was committed um but but these are often um repressed feelings that come to come to to the surface or repressed uh, behaviors or or they're reactive in some way where um it's happened because the environment the person's in has precipitated their behavior in some un unknown or some tacit way and we're very aware of that um well certainly i was when i was training as a nurse and also when i trained other healthcare professionals that our um our behaviors and how we come across in an environment uh, we might think we're doing the right thing but we could be doing all the wrong things very easily and we could be precipitating exactly what we're trying to stop and um this is i think this is a fundamental issue with any um body of expertise and that if it's reflexive and understands how it how it can precipitate that which it's trying to cure or trying to stop i mean this is this is what's happened in the last couple of years with mm. um covid mm. and and doctors and nurses thinking they're doing the right things and um sadly realizing some of them that they are not being doing the right things they've been following orders or following a a a a line of thinking which has been fed to them and hasn't hasn't been questioned um and um is is that what happened to you you decided to question i i um yes but it, it, with me it wasn't just um you know one morning i got up and i decided i'm going to become mr critical and um i was always a problem <laughs> all the way through <laughs> no i didn't i didn't i didn't um I, there was no sort of saint paul moment for me where i was on the road to damascus and i suddenly saw the light except i think possibly with the hiv uh science there was there was a year when i completely turned around and that was 1996 97 but up to then i'd worked in the 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 whole industry the hiv aids industry and i'd experienced multiple anomalies again and again in every job i had in that industry and the anomalies were to do with the underpinning uh science and technology or certainly the underpinning science for the technology but also the way the the mindset was in the 1980s you know it was just bizarre jeremy because you go to work in a new medical field and i thought you know it's going to be you know it's going to be like star trek you know it's going to be mm. sailing into the future finding a cure you know this is everybody's on a mission and it was it was just absolutely awful it was like battle zone really because every most of the doctors were working to really terminal view of treatment they were looking at palliative care almost first option there was hardly any acute care really and certainly um in the 1980s and the wards i worked in it was so hard to get patients even to intensive care units with hiv because they just truncated the treatment to first line acute care and if there's no improvement then that was it there was there was nothing else for people and um it was very very hard working yeah. in that environment because uh, people were being um brought down a sort of palliative care terminal care route i thought too too quickly um and you know what's interesting euthanasia euthanasia yeah you know if to be honest it was you know as a, as a as a registered nurse uh, looking at trying to to help people live which is what i you know trained to do mm. um i found it very strange when the uh the whole modus operandi was terminality and mm. not for resuscitation and 
you know, you're talking about people who are young and, and um, relatively young. They might have been in a very bad way physically, but uh, certainly I, I, I thought that it wasn't, the model wasn't right. And I, you know, like a lot of anomalies, you clock them and you put them to one side and you move on. Then you get another anomaly and another mm. anomaly and another anomaly. And by the time I was starting to do thinking about doing uh, doctoral research, I'd had so many anomalies that um, once I found that the science was was questionable and had been questioned, which I hadn't understood, I hadn't really known about until the mid 90s, then for me, there was this um, awakening, this, this um, St. Paul's moment, you know, on the road to Damascus. It's a very dramatic bit of the New Testament, isn't it? But um, it was very much like that. I suddenly realized that what I'd been experiencing in practical clinical anomalies was actually reflected in the science of HIV in that it was, it, it was very questionable. It was open for dispute. It wasn't what we call settled science, which is how they presented it to us and when i realized that uh two things happened i was very um positive and i could see a way forward with my research but uh, my career in the whole field had to be left behind my standing in the field um became in my view questionable yeah. and i moved away from it and it was inexplicable to a lot of people that i worked with because unless they'd understood the science of the tests or the lack of science, and then the whole issue about the virus never being proven, never being isolated, never being um, purified, and that was the basis of the faulty tests. And we're talking about the Perth Group's work here, really, as well as Peter Duesberg's, but mainly the Perth Group's work. This completely destroyed my faith in, 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 in my career, and I had to find more appropriate ways forward as an academic and to do research and to teach. For and integrity. So I taught about it. And I, yeah, well, it is a bit of integrity. Yes, I suppose it's integrity. And, um, but it didn't mean that I immediately um, stood up and I, you know, wouldn't do this, wouldn't do that. I mean, I ran educational programs around HIV, but I always started them in the science and I would bring in the caveats and I would bring in the alternative views for students. And, and that's the, the, the benefit of working in education. It isn't about propaganda and it isn't about brainwashing people. No, I taught in medical schools and nursing schools, faculties, integrated faculties. And um, I never had any problems. People knew that I had no belief in the science and that I taught it from, uh, you know, I taught the mainstream and the alternative together. But I couldn't have a career in it in terms of working in NHS services, clinical services. I just wouldn't be able to, to prescribe and I wouldn't be able to treat people. I would be taking, I would be giving them the grammar to understand the problems with the science that their treatments were based on. And that would be seen as unethical. It would be yeah. seen as um, dangerous, dangerous. You know, you know what's interesting, um, um, Kevin, is that here in South Africa, I mean, we were pretty much the epicenter of the AIDS story, the AIDS narrative, right? Um, and I feel ashamed that I was one of those people who basically cheered on. I, mm. I celebrated the removal of the former president who asked about mm. the link between HIV and AIDS. Mm. And I, I can't understand why I just followed the herd, but I did. Well, I think it's very difficult for people to see it. And you've given, you know, your personal account there mm. and, because for people to understand this, um, and I'm going to quote here, it's not my coinage, I didn't invent this, but 
they've got to somehow unbelieve what they believe. And I think Eleni Papadopoulos said that in a document. Ah, from the Perth group. To, yes, to, 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 to understand this whole approach to, um, it's not just virology, I think it's the whole of orthodox medicine in a way. You've got to somehow get people to unbelieve what they've believed up to that point, or certainly be able to question it in a, in a critical way and look at their own behavior up to that point. I mean, as much as I was part of that system and I was an instrument of it, giving patients drugs, treating people on a daily basis, you know, the quotidian work, I operated there with a critical uh, awareness that there was something wrong about the whole model. It was too palliative, it's too terminal in its approach. And, and, and I could cite uh, examples where I subverted that system, a bit like throwing a spanner into the works. Uh, the system didn't seize up. But for those individuals that I was treating or looking after, it must have, and it did have certain ramifications that were positive. I'm not saying that I uh, took people's drugs away from them or whatever, but it, it's about giving people some sort of, or helping people themselves develop mm some critical understanding whereby they can say no to things. So they can say no to tests, they can say no to drugs. Does rely on consent all this. We don't put people up against a wall with a gun and tell them to take the drugs. We don't put people up against a wall with a gun and tell them to take the COVID backs. It relies on consent and it rely on, on, on a, a liberal playing field, it relies on people saying yes or no. It still does. And that's how it's supposed to work. And if you adhere to those sorts of approaches, um, I mean, you know, we're not talking about the Nazi death camps, or maybe we are, but you know, people went to those through consent very often with very little force. So there is this there is this way, I'm not saying you can exist in the system and you can, um, you can make it more humane, but I think I'm saying something like that, that you can have one individual can have a positive effect that is quite counter to the modus operandi of the system that they're working in. And I think you can see lots of examples of this all the time. And I don't believe that anybody who goes into health services today is evil or they're killers or they're psychopaths or they want to murder people no people are going into big systems health systems that are guided by protocols and systems that go beyond the individual and that's the problem you see uh, and um, people's own clinical judgment and their clinical acumen has gone and they become yeah. cogs in a wheel do you think and um do you think kevin also that there is a uh there's a death grip um, in being too hyper-specialized and staying in your lane. Yeah, I think we're, in, we're, a, we're a culture that's become a culture of expertise and specialisms. And um, they're like cul-de-sacs. You go one way and you can't get out. And you can't then see the, greater, the bigger picture, perhaps. You can't come back, pan back like a camera and look at the overall, uh, you're focusing down on things. And that makes the individual expert uh, less of a genericist. So they can't make a decision about other areas. And they can't, they don't feel they can even talk about them. I mean, we have this all the time with, you, know, you see it all the time now, Who who's qualified to speak, you know, this is the issue we've had in the last two and a half years. And, and I'm called, I'm just a nurse. That's what people say. You're just a nurse. Okay, well, that's possibly true. But what, what, who is qualified to speak about anything to do with anything? And what are qualifications worth anyway? You know, your knowledge and understanding of an area is surely something that people can perceive an authenticity to 
without you having to have a bit of paper that says you're you've got this certificate or that certificate and i know that you know in the in the um the viral skeptic movement the, the everybody you know you see these names and they're this person that person md or phd or whatever and maybe we we sh we shouldn't do that and we're guilty of playing that game as well to tout our credibility to the public so they can see that we're we're authentic and I think the most qualified people to speak that I've known in the last two and a half, three years are people who've had no training, formal training, and they've engaged with an area out of interest and they've, they're able to become self-tutored experts really in a way and, um, and not lose the bigger picture because you see the thing about going into specialism and becoming a specialist and having a training is also a, a social indoctrination. You're inculcated into a set of values and a set of behaviors, and you then take on an identity, and then you take on, uh, you want to protect that identity, you want to protect that group identity, that group formation, I suppose. And you see it all the time in medicine, and, and medicine and nursing and the law, you know, three different sorts of professions there, and in medicine, doctors would always stand together, always. If there was a mistake, it was a corporate mistake and you'd never be able to locate blame on an individual doctor. Uh, whereas in nursing, we didn't have that sort of culture. It was very much um, a different culture where it was more sacrificial in a sense that the individual nurse would own up to the problem. They'd made the mistake and they would take the blame. Whereas in medicine, in my experience, it's always been very hard to locate blame because, um, because of the way the, the professionals stand together. And I can imagine law is even worse because law is much more the true profession, I think, when you look at the criteria of what is a profession. You're talking about an alleged virus that targeted gay men in nightclubs and poor black people in Africa. That's the absurdity of it. And we all, we all took the bait. Yes. Well, and I think that, yes, the very, I mean, you've got what you said there, took the bait. You've also described the spectrum of stereotypes, you know, the spectrum of stereotypes. Gay men, hypersexual, that was a stereotype. That was the epidemiological construction of gay men all through the 1970s through the hepatitis B trials, gay bowel syndrome, gay-related immune deficiency, and then AIDS. You had this, this ratcheting up of, of attention onto gay men and gay men's sexuality, which had been decriminalized in the 1960s, and suddenly in the 70s and 80s was becoming increasingly medicalized. And, you know, that's a, a, that's a pendulum that swang one way and then another, and the same with uh, same with black people in the UK in the 1990s, black Africans became an epidemiological risk group for HIV. So we to believe this, that this virus so-called makes a target for these particular social groups, these cultural groups, um, which, you know, and then of course, drug users and hemophiliacs. And then there were prostitute women as well that were on the on 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 the side that seemed to got they got dropped off the epidemiological um, picture. But this is basically the construction, the social construction of it. It's socially created for purposes, for particular intentions, and it's the intentionality there was drugs, treatments, um, focusing on the fringes of society uh, or in you know cultural groups in, in how you know black africans in the uk you know i mean any black man or woman that i know in the uk has grown up in, in my lifetime knows how to deal with authority they know the issues with authority they know that they're under scrutiny all the time from authority 
and they can be stopped and searched just because of the color of their skin. So th th these are important, I think, sociological um, understandings to have. And I think the same, same is the same with gay men. Drug users, same, same issue. Um, groups that are perceived as outside the, the mainstream and as such yeah. were at are at risk, were at risk, are at risk and still are at risk, I think. Do you, do you not think that gay men also perpetuated the fear by buying into it also? Well, I think the leaders in, in you know, if there's such a thing, I, I, I don't buy into the concept of the gay community. I think that that is a fiction that was created in the 19... 60s certainly by the 70s for all sorts of political reasons to normalize and to integrate and to to win acceptance and to win rights i mean you know to win equal rights was a fight um but i don't believe that there is this thing called gay community i think it's a fiction maybe a necessary fiction politically um but I think what happened in the 1980s were exactly what's was exactly what's happening today with COVID. We got these groups that were formed to help the people affected win rights, win access to treatments or whatever. And those, those groups became colonized by vested interests, mainly from the pharmaceutical lobbies and the biotech lobby. And I think the same thing happened, um, you know, is happening now. And I think that this whole, um, there were people in, in the gay community who were critical of the virus idea, the virus concept, but their voices were smaller in effect than the others. And so, again, it's what gets the funding, it's what gets heard and what, doesn't get heard is important and you can think of the work of people like john lawrenson in the 1980s who was a gay man and well known in the gay community in new york and came out against azt and the hiv drugs and testing and the whole caboodle the whole viral concept and there was, it was the same in the uk in the 1990s there's a magazine called continuum who, which was led by Hugh Christie, a gay, openly gay man, who was totally against the viral model and published all the Perth Group's work in Continuum magazine. So as much as the gay community, if you like to use that term, um, which I don't, but let's just use it for this point for the argument, as much as it went along with the virus model, there were elements within it that were contesting it completely, fundamentally. So it's about how power and money work, really. And um, you can see the same thing today. I mean, how many of these groups that are fighting COVID, um, like Children's Health Defense or World Council for Health or any of these organizations, how much are they engaging with the fundamentals of the virology and questioning? They're not. They're going along with basically they're ending up in we need safer vaccines category you know safer drugs or uh, ivermectin hydroxychloroquine stuff like that they're they're not really questioning the radically the fundamental axioms of the whole thing which is where is the proof there is the virus and yeah unless that question unless that is center stage this won't change and and, um, you know, I have to say, I saw it 40 years ago with mm. HIV AIDS, and it's no different, no different today. And it's going 90%, going, they're going 90% of the way and then stopping. Well, not even that really. But, but the thing about this is, it's a paradigm. It's a worldview, Jeremy, you see. And it isn't just, look, no paper in the British Medical Journal or the Lancet or, you know, any paper that we write is going to overturn this on its own. 
because it's a worldview. There's an infrastructure that's been built up since the 1900s through fun. It's, it, this has come out of molecular biology and the development of molecular biology and the growth of the biotechnology industry from the 1970s. There's an infrastructure there. It isn't just virologists on their own. It's the infrastructure, the commercial, industrial infrastructure that's bred this, you know. It was the Cetus Corporation um, in the 1980s that developed the PCR test or methodology. They employed Carrie Mullis and lots of other scientists and they worked on a way, a clean way of identifying viruses that didn't rely on laboratories and people in white coats and petri dishes and all the rest of it. We wanted something clean that's based in algorithms and in the genetic paradigm of code, of code. And the Cetus Corporation did that. Uh, it wasn't just Carrie Mullis that dreamed it up while he's driving through the Arizona desert or whatever. That's the, that's the fairy story, Nobel Prize winning fairy story, the, 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 the very intelligent, hyper-intelligent scientist that has the eureka moment. Science doesn't work like that. It it's it's, works in a very laborious, labor-intensive, plodding way, day after day, you know, um, you know, nine to five, uh, you know, and the eureka moment happens, yes, but it all happens, you know, um, in a sort of very boring way. And um, unless the money's there and the infrastructure's there, these ideas don't take hold. And this was what was developed from, you know, the early 20th century through the development of molecular biology, the focus that was put into that, from the Rockefeller and the Carnegie Foundations, this money flow that developed this whole um, way of looking at life through molecular terms. And that's, that's what's bred virology, modern virology. And the geneticization that's happened has, has you know, really honed it down to the computer. And in, that's how uh, gene banks work today. That's how uh, viruses are identified and typed today, not through petri dishes and people in white coats in labs doing chemical experiments, but through gene banks, through sequencing, through Sanger sequencing, through uh, metagenomics. This whole approach came, came in the last hundred years. And until that changes, this is not going to go away. Of course, we should be doing the papers, speaking out and showing the caveats in it. But let's be, let's be realistic here about how science actually works in the 21st century. And I'm afraid that as much as I like Thomas Kuhn's work and structure scientific revolutions that, you know, he sort of hypothesized that science, the worldview in science changes through paradigm changes as anomalies build up. And then suddenly the accepted way of looking at something changes completely. I think that in today's world is a little bit naive because it doesn't factor in the politics and the power dynamic. And, and you know, this is where we are today with, with PCRs and, and lateral flows and uh, people being told that every time they get out of their house, they have to take a test when they come back home to see if they've been exposed. This is, this is the world that's being created through this infrastructure. And until that infrastructure shifts or actually deflates and goes away, we're not going to have a change. And uh, I think that this is a, quite a revolution that has to happen. And how it happens is through small movements, small scale, shifts and um, this is the theory of citizen science the people can develop their own scientific expertise without the official experts and they can live their lives outside of the mainstream 
or creating a different mainstream. So like what you and I are doing right now? I think there's perhaps you could make a claim that we're trying to do that. But mm. I think the idea, Jeremy, that this is just going to shift with one paper in the British Medical Journal or, you know, some virologist comes out and says it's all wrong. No. That, that will happen. That it's, it's not. That's, it's too entrenched. I'd like it to happen like that. It's too trite. Yeah, it's mm. too. When you think of the money involved and just look at it, I mean, just look at the money that companies like Pfizer are making or AstraZeneca or or all the infrastructure there, the laboratories, the people they employ. There's a vast um, army there that's tooled up. I mean, look at the look 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 at, look at how it works. The journals are captured. There's certain things you cannot even say, and you mm. just won't get published. And uh, so you're having to go outside of the publication, the normal publication routes. People like Thomas Kuhn didn't have any idea about that. I don't think that the way modern science works, the way that capital and, uh, works through science and that mm. the science is created to, for the capital, for capitalism really. You know, the science is created, the evidence is created almost like bought really. And um, this has happened so, it's so routine, you see. And um, it's so difficult for people to understand because people have been fed this idea that science is all about truth and justice and, no. you know, how, how truth is arrived at. Mm. Truth socially mediated, it's socially constructed. And whose truth are we talking about here? And who funds it? I mean, that's the major thing with any study is who funds it? In whose interest is it? For this piece of research to be published and to be advertised. Yeah. So, for example, a, a, a research paper done on sugar, funded by Coca-Cola. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, you know, that's probably a very good example of it. But any paper that's published, the fact that it's been published in the mainstream journal, you look at who's funded it. Mm. and and the conflicts of interest and um you can see that some have no funding and um and of course you can get eureka moments and you can get things being overturned through one paper i'm not saying that that won't happen but the likelihood of that happening with say covid or whatever the next one is um is not going to be there. I mean, look at climate change as an example of um, a discourse that's created to control mm. and to bring in certain agendas. Uh, I, I remember saying years ago to David Crow in Canada that uh, I think it's 20 years ago, I remember saying to him, I think climate change is just like HIV and AIDS. Yes. And he just laughed and he said, Do you know, I hadn't thought of that. He said, I think you're right, you know, it's so full of holes, the whole concept of, um, we didn't call it climate change then, what do we call global, it? Global warming. Global, that's right, global warming. You know, it's a discourse that takes hold of, of people for a reason and an intention to control them, just like HIV is about controlling people's sexuality, controlling their sexual behavior, and making them docile, making them pill-taking, mm. making them consumers of pharmaceutical products for the rest of their life. And um, do you really need to do that when you've got no symptoms? You know, I mean, it's just when you look at it on, when you look at any aspect of modern medicine, any diagnostic, look at, look at treatment of blood pressure, treatment mm. of diabetes, Cholesterol. Statin cholesterol, statin therapies, mm. all of these are dependency structures. They're about creating a health consumer that takes products for the rest daily for the rest of their lives. There's no cure in those models at all. The business model doesn't have the cure word in it. It has a dependency hardwired into it. And you are there 
taking it for the rest of your life, you know. And God help you when you get to my age, because if you go along that model, you will be on 10, 15, well, they call it polypharmacy, but you'll be on 10 to 15 products. You know, I'm, I'm an old age pensioner. I'm retired, officially retired. I'm on my um, pensions, my occupational pension, my state pension. So officially, I'm, you know, one of those people that the government here wants to tax and get rid of because we're seen as uh, Baggage. useless eaters. We're not producing anything. Baggage, you know. In fact, we've worked. When did I start working? <laughs> I started working when I was at school. And when I was uh, when I was seventeen, I had my first job, and I've worked ever since. And I probably am working now, really. But I'm not paid to do this, you know. And mm -hmm. I don't monetize what I do uh, out of. Um, I, I'm just not interested in monetizing it. I can't be bothered with it, really, to be quite honest. And maybe I should, but I mean, if people ask me to come and speak in situ in, 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 in the real world and I go to a meeting, then I, I'd say, well, could you give me some money for my petrol or whatever? But I don't give a, I don't have a fee. I don't, I don't see that I should charge like that um, because I don't need to make an income to live. I've got a pension. We have a pension to live on and all the rest of it. So, I mean, that's just my personal view um, that I don't feel comfortable with um, that sort of, um, you know, I'm not interested in packing Wembley Arena 10 times a week. And, you know, maybe I could do that. I don't know. Maybe uh, I should. Where can I follow your work? Probably the best thing is to look at the Telegram channel I've got, just, just called Kevin Corbett. And I post most of what I do on there, not everything. And if you Google, you can get uh, I don't my Google. work, it's my written work. It's on my website, kevinpcorbett.com, or it's not Google, sorry. Uh, I shouldn't mention Google. Um, <laughs> if you search on the internet, you can find my work on um, my own Search website. on the internet. <laughs> and um, you can, you can um, find some of my work. It's on academia.edu as well. And, and also, you find my work in some journal. My, you know, mainstream stuff is all in journals. And uh, I think the Middlesex University repository has all my work up till 2020. Uh, 2020. All my most of my published written work is there from the 1980s to 2020 on the Middlesex University repository. Maybe I shouldn't mention my old employer, but they were my employer and they seem to have all my work there because I uploaded it when I worked for them. So it's all there. Kevin Corbett, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.